Hello, my name's Russell Harcroft and I've been, well, I've lived a lot of lives. I've been an ad man, a CEO, a chair, an author, a panellist, and I'm currently co-host of a radio show on 3RW and I'm partner, chief creative officer at the Sayers Group and I host this podcast. Welcome to Conversations. That's Conversations, a Sayers podcast. Throughout my time, I've learned that so much in life starts with, yet yeah, a conversation and that's what we're going to do right here today. And today... We're going to be speaking to the CEO, Chief Executive Officer of David Jones, Mr. Scott Fife. Great to see you, Scott. Great to see you, Ross, and thanks for having me along. Okay, now conversations. Now, which, which part of Great Britain do you come from? Um, originally from Scotland. Now, I reckon the Scots are pretty good at a chat. We are very good at chatting. The, the thing that I love about being in the UK, um, so all parts of the UK, I don't reckon there's a pub I'd walk past where I don't hear chatter and importantly or significantly for me laughter do you is that if i put that picture in your mind is that the same sense that you get when you think about walking down the streets and walking past pubs yeah i think so and i think you know when you walk down a high street and in the uk particularly in scotland people want to stop and talk to you and engage have a laugh maybe take the mickey out of you and you know that's scotland for me someone (laughs) like billy conley he's stereotypical of a scotsman yeah he's a he's a beauty now Conversations, uh, that's what this podcast is all about. Um, we want you to feel really free just to you know, go for it. Um, the good, the bad and the ugly is what we like to say. But first of all, we want to we put you into, um, into a place where you really enjoy having those conversations. So it might be a pub in Scotland, but equally it might not be. Now, in order to give you a hand, we're just going to play you some audio. I reckon the last one might make you feel like you're in the north of Scotland. Jeez. Any of those in particular resonate with you, Scott? Uh, I think the hustle and bustle of the second one really resonates with me. You know, working in retail all my life, I love the hustle and bustle. I love hearing people in our stores talking, chatting, and the real atmosphere. uh, I wanted to talk to you about, you know, your retail life. So let's just go, let's go there. Um, Give us a bit of a, you know, a potted history or indeed a solid history of what you've done in the retail world. Yeah, so I've been really fortunate. Um, I've, I've had a, an exceptionally lucky and experienced career. Um, I started my career at Marks & Spencers, based in London. Um, I turned up there as a, as a graduate trainee. Um, I was in the men's knitwear department. I'd done a marketing degree at university. I said to them, you know, how much do you spend on marketing here? They said, we don't spend anything on marketing. We just buy what we buy last year and buy 10% more. So um, that was an interesting experience to start with. But I was really fortunate. I spent six months on the sales floor in front of the customers. Um, It was a very traditional um, journey for me in terms of learning, buying, merchandising experience. And interestingly, when I started in uh, the mid-90s, 98% of the production was made in the UK. Wow. So it was, a, it was a real British traditional business, um, which was exceptional. And on a Friday, I got sent to the factories to understand how the clothes were made, um, how to replenish stock, how to understand this whole supply chain for Marks and Spencers. And I was so fortunate to have some great leaders to learn from. Unbelievable. So m for how long? So I was there for 20 years, yeah. a real variety of roles, trading director roles. I also set up the international sourcing offices when we started sourcing from overseas. 
Um, I set up Bangladesh, India, Vietnam, Cambodia, Hong Kong. Um, so very, very fortunate to have been given that experience to work across the world, to travel the world and meet some amazing people. So MBS is fascinating, really, isn't it? I mean, it's deep in the British culture. So I- explain that to to us Australians a little. So m- maybe not everyone realises just how, you know, as I say, deep the MS business, how deep it resides with, with your average Britain. Yeah, I mean, it started as a clothing brand um, and then diversified it into foods. Um, it was built on some really clear values, quality, value, innovation and trust, <laughs> um, which I still remember to today. And it was really iconic on the British history and it was really before fas- fashion came into place and it really di- did differentiate on quality. Um, and, you know, I was very fortunate to work for some great leaders there. I learned a lot from it, a vast expanse of a store network. And through the early 2000s, I was lucky enough to be part of the team that started building the digital journey for Marks and Spencers. So another observation, and tell me if I'm right or wrong, that it, M&S has done a very good job of being across all walks of society. Um, so obviously the UK is a little more structured. Its society is a little more structured than it is here in Australia. And yet you, you find that everyone is, um, is a potential or is, in fact, loyal to M&S. Is that fair? Yeah, I think there's huge loyalty. Um, it's probably a traditional loyalty that's been there from an older customer base. Um, and it's been a brand that survived selling its own brand for many years, which I think is a true testament to that business. And clearly the business has changed over the last particularly 10 years as digitalizations come in and the internet's obviously changed people's lives forever. Uh, and tell me, Brits and retail, what is it? Oh, we just love it. We love buying and selling. We love the buzz. We love the connectivity of people. Um, and ultimately, we're goal-driven. And in retail, it's about winning. Um, and I think that's why there's been a lot of successful British retailers travelled the globe yeah. and doing some great great jobs internationally. So uh, obviously here in Australia, a lot of executives do come from Britain and they do brilliantly when they're here. So... I imagine that it's, it's not just Australians that receive great British retailers. So you spread, is it, is it just colonial countries that you go and give a hand to or are you all over the world? I think Brits are all over the world. Uh, I think colonial countries, probably a lot of Brits started in, but clearly um, you know, the globe's opened up to opportunities. And in my sourcing role at Marks & Spencer's, I met a lot of people from yeah. a broad spectrum. And you know, we've had traditional training. I think part of the Marks & Spencer's model was that People worked in factories, even though they worked for Marks & Spencer, so they knew on the manufacturing and they knew where the value in the supply chain was that they could pass on to the customer. So I'm, I'm guessing that 20 years at M&S, maybe you might have gone out there earlier than most. Is that fair? Yeah, well, I mean, I, uh, I was very lucky. Age 32, I was a director at Marks & Spencer. I was one, one of the youngest directors ever at M&S. I was given an opportunity... They clearly spotted some talent, and I'm just glad I delivered for uh, yeah, them. Yeah, very good. So... From MDS to where? Um, so I got approached to come to Australia. I wanted to do a global role. I'd obviously done a global role with my sourcing, but I wanted to bring my family across the world. I wanted to experience living uh, in, in a different country, understanding different cultures. Um, so I came to run the Country Road Group um, in 2016. Yeah, fabulous. And now Country Road, give us a, so as you say, Country Road Group. So not just the Country Road brand. So give us a, an understanding of the depth of that business. Yeah, so an amazing business. Five brands across that business. Country Road, Witchery, Mimco, Politics and Trenary. Um, what I did was I came, I went back to the roots. I actually, with Steve Bennett, uh, yeah. went back and understood in 1974 why he established that uh, brand. Amazing. 
and what the credentials of that brand were, what made it special and so iconic to Australian customers. Um, and very, very luckily, got a great team around me, and we brought it back to what it should be. And you know, it's an iconic Australian brand, and I'm really proud about what the team have done. So um, when I think about Country Road as a young fella, if you didn't have a Country Road blue shirt, then you were just nowhere. Um, is that what Steve would say as well? Well, I think he was probably targeting you Scotch boys in his day. Um, I know that the blue chambray shirt was great, but the iconic nature of that brand. And what is interesting is when you go and work for a brand like that, you really notice the tote bags. Yeah. And um, when I was living in London and, and just about to come out here, I would spot all these Aussies with the tote bags. And, you know, amazing stories behind some of the brands, which was just incredible. Oh, my goodness me. I, just so strong. Now, Country Road, and then you've been tap DJs. So that's what, is it, it's not two years yet, it must be getting close. Yeah, just coming up for two years. I think we've all lost a bit of track of time with yeah. the pandemic. Um, but yeah, just under two years I've been there. So why did you do it? Well, I get asked that question quite a lot, Russell. And um, <laughs> it is an iconic Australian brand. And I've been very fortunate in my career through M&S Country Road Group to work for iconic brands. Um, I think the business needed a new focus. It needed a new vision. It needed a new strategy. And clearly having through one of the rounds of the pandemic, um, it needed some new leadership. And I was fortunate, and I feel really honoured to be asked to run one of Australia's most iconic brands. So if you think about, well, in fact, I think is it Australia's oldest retail brand? It's actually the world's oldest brand, department store, that's still called the same as it is today. <laughs> that's unreal, isn't it? So if we think about brands that um, have been under pressure as the world's changed, right? so, you know, the, I, I love the stat that, you know, the New York Stock Exchange the top 10 stocks in the year 2000 are entirely different from the year 2022, right? So we've had mega change. Uh, and it's been tough for a lot of legacy businesses. Of course, like if you're a newspaper, for example, it's pretty hard going. I reckon if you're a department store, it's seriously hard going. Who has done it well? Who has, around the world, who's done the department store thing, i.e. change, well? There's a couple of really great examples of where department stores have done really well. Um, Selfridges in London's one, Le Bon Marché in Paris is another, um, <clears throat> and Nordstrom in the US is another great example. They've all done different things, but they've put the customer at the heart of everything they do. Yep. They've made it experiential. They've decided that racks and racks of clothing um, without experiential isn't the way forward, and they've all embraced a digital journey from their from the customers, both from an in-store point of view and an external point of view. Yeah. So, you know, it's an exciting place to be. There's a lot of scepticism about what is the future of department stores, but for me it's experiential. It's putting the customer at the heart of everything we do, and it's really ramping up our assortment and making sure it's rele relevant to the customers. So the give future. me example. So experiential, I, I, I sort of broadly get it, um, but explain to me what you mean by that. So, you know, take our Elizabeth Street store where we've put a huge amount of investment in. We've nearly put in $400 million worth of investment into that store. And it's about having the best possible assortment for our customers as well as services and experiences. Right. So it's about walking into that store, seeing amazingly laid out uh, department stores. It's about having service like no other, which is what we're going di to differentiate on. And then we're throwing in champagne bars. We're showing, throwing in pop-ups. We're doing experiential things across the whole store to really bring that to life for our customers. We can bring in personalised styling suites, which we've really invested in. Nice. And we're really, really investing in that customer journey. So we've got blow bars in there, we've got coffee shops in there, and we really want to make sure that we increase the dwell time for our customers in the stores. Okay, so that is the key metric, dwell time? 
oh, listen, it's all about how much they spend for me. But um, the more they spend in the store, yeah. the more time they spend in the more store, the more opportunities. Okay, so the obvious question, but it needs to be asked. So the the digital mix. So I'm talking about sales now. Digital sales mix versus your traditional cash register sales. How, how's that tracking? Yeah, I mean, listen, the, the digital boom has really come to Australia. It was lagging. It was certainly lagging behind the US and the, the UK when I came in 2016. The, the COVID pandemic has really accelerated the digital transformation. Yeah. Um, from a DJ's perspective, you know, we here's a great stat for you. This year on Black Friday, we took as much money as we took in the year 2013 for the whole year. Oh so we've had to wake up. <laughs> we've had to really accelerate what we're doing. And we need to ensure that we've got a physical and a digital uh, journey for our customers that come together. So we're really focused on our customer ecosystem yep. and making sure we've got a, a succinct customer journey. So transformation, um, it's a good word. You know, obviously consultants love it. Um, and, it and we all need to do it. But digital transformation in the context of DJs, tell me what that means. Yeah, so we're putting the customer at the heart of everything we're doing. So we're starting with customer data insight segmentation. Who is our customer? how many we've got, how many are shopping, and then we're looking at the science of shopping, of where are they shopping in stores and online, and our most valuable customers are omni-customers. So customer to start with is absolutely key for us. And what we've done on after customers then, four key principles that we're working to. So inspiring creativity and style through the brand assortments that we have. We want to have the world-class best assortment we can have, and we're really focused on that. And since I've been with the business, we've brought in over 200 new brands to complement some of the local Australian brands, which are really iconic and really on the global scale um, really compete. Um, and we want to differentiate in our assortment. We need to dial up service. Service like no other is a mantra. And yep. that's from whether we come in from a digital point of view to your doorstep or whether you come in physically to our stores. We really want to make sure as well we focus on our legacy. So building our legacy, sustainability in retail is a huge thing we need to focus on. Okay. And I want to make sure we leave this brand in a better place than I found it. Right, good man. So the sustainability is where I've got my sort of the killer questions because that's got to be... Re- I, I'm going to say that's tougher than a digital transformation. Um, literally fulfilling the consumer's want for sustainable practices in retail and in fashion. That must be one tough hill to, tr- to climb. Yeah, well, listen, I was very fortunate um, in the early parts of my career. I worked with an amazing leader who in the early 2000s started the sustainability journey at Marks & Spencers, and it's still held up as one of the global benchmarks. And when you can control your supply chain, it's easier to have a sustainability message. So from the cotton fields you start in to the factories you make in, to the stores you design, to the packaging you deliver your customers in, you've got end-to-end um, accountability for that sustainability journey. And we started with 10 key points in sustainability that we wanted to deliver. Uh-huh. With now, the legacy is there's 100 that that business is now working to. So it's amazing. Even to teardrop drop trucks, um, which environmentally could run um, off less fuel and were mo- more fuel efficient. So that um, journey has really gone from strength to strength. When you come to David Jones and you are a curator of the best brands in the world, you have to work with the best brands on sustainability. And we've been really proud to work with the likes of Clam Corner, Blue Spinach, which are um, innovators of uh, recycled products or reused products, and that's where we'll build the David Jones brand. But that's not enough for us. We need to look at store design. When I was at Country Road Group, we put in this first six-star sustainable store 
And our intention very much at David Jones is to go down that sustainability route. So using re recycled materials, wood, timber, etc., to make some of our stores is, is what the customer wants. And the big one for us is the elimination of single-use plastic. Yeah. So let's get rid of plastic bags. We're on that journey. We're moving to a much more sustainable place. And I think that's what the EVP of the business going forward will be to attract younger people into our stores. Yeah, well, that's interesting because um, where I was going to go next was... Do you think you know sustainability in all that it, it encompasses? It's obviously a massive you know enterprise to to deliver sustainability. Do you think it's table stakes or do you think it's differentiating? I think it's differentiating, and I think it's going to be differentiating for our consumers of the future and for our employees of the future. You know, the younger generation want us to be have a sustainable journey, and we've got a responsibility to the societies and communities that we serve as the David Jones brand. It was interesting earlier in our conversation, you were talking about over 90% of the goods that were in M&S were built in Britain, created in Britain when you were first there at M&S, and obviously that would have gone out to other markets over the last 20 years. It's interesting. You, I think we're all getting the sense that that actually is starting to reverse in that there is an increasing desire by the consumer, if we're customer-led, to purchase Australian-built, um, or if you're in Britain, British-built, or in the, if you're in the US or, Jap or Japan. Like the, it, all of a sudden, we're, we're becoming a little more, dare I say this word, nationalistic in, in how we go about consuming. Is that me just reading something that's not there, or is that actually there? Um, so, Russell, I think there's definitely something in this. Um, I think it's even pre-pandemic that we saw this happening. Um, people are really nationalistic. People are proud of countries like Australia and really proud about what they produce from raw material through to finished garments. Now, clearly it's been more of a challenge in recent times with lack of investment into production sites, but there's some amazing brands that I'm really proud to say support David Jones, and they, they still actually make product in Australia. I think we've got to do a better job working with them, but tell them the consumer. 2019, <coughs> um, pre-pandemic. Um, I've been sort of speculating that that was peak air. <laughs> Do you reckon it might have been peak air? Yeah, I think it was. You know, we want to go on a sustainability story. The amount of air travel we were doing was just unmanageable. Yeah. Um, and also from a lifestyle and, and quality of life point of view, we didn't need to do that amount of travelling. Mm. So clearly technology is the solution to that, and we've all adapted and learned to work in different ways. The other thing I've been speculating uh toying with lately is okay so we go back to the 1950s um so 1950s where the the television's invented so we've got the ability to mass mass media we can build brands on mass we're also building roads everywhere we've everyone all of a sudden's got a car so the opportunity to distribute on mass is all of a sudden we then build retail outlets you know in various conurbations as they would say in britain what i'm wondering have we have we actually gone past the era, era of mass media, mass brand? Uh, I mean, it's an interesting one. Uh, have we gone past mass media? We probably are uh, pulling that back. Um, if you look at a business like ours in terms of what we would spend on media, it's completely different now to what yeah. we used to spend. It's much more digitally focused. We want you to wake up, see something from our brand, connect with our brand. And I think through the digital transformation that's happening in all of our lives, you have to think differently. Yeah. And it's actually about how you connect with the customers in a personalised way rather than a mass market way. So what you have done, though, in a, ma in a, in a sense, in a mass market way, way recently is you've created a hot air balloon. But tell us about that. 
Oh, listen, it's part of our Vision 2025 strategy, which is to inspire like no other. And we've got an iconic houndstooth at David Jones, which for 183 years has been part of the brand. Um, and we thought, you know, how do we bring a smile to everyone's face? Um, clearly, the last two years has been really challenging. So we've worked with a hot air balloon company. We've launched hot air balloons. The balloon will go around Australia for the next six to nine months. Um, and it's an opportunity for us to share that with some of our customers, some of our staff, and bring a smile to everyone's face. And for me, there was nothing prouder than me seeing the David Jones houndstooth floating over the MCG on the first day of launch um, with some of our team in it, which was, which was great. I agree. I think it's glorious. So that leads to um, the notion of leadership, because sometimes what... I, I like thinking about leaders actually getting in the hot air balloon and seeing, you know, looking down on stuff and finding a way to get above the fray. So tell us about you as a leader. Yeah, listen, I, I've, I've been very fortunate to learn from other leaders and I think that's one of the things I would say to people on leadership is look around you, look out the window every day and work out what's going on in that world um, and lead authentically. You know, be open, be transparent, but the most important thing as a leader is to listen, mm -hmm. then yeah. to listen again. And then to make sure you've listened, because there's not enough leaders that do that. Um, and I think that really brings people on board and really makes sure that people are engaged with you. The other thing I say to my, my leadership style is um, park your ego at the front door and lead by example. And I think through the pandemic, we've very much at David Jones taken a people first strategy. And we, our egos had to go out the front door and be parked because we needed to lead by example None of us in our careers have ever had to lead through such a turbulent time. Um, and it's about personal reflection as well. It's about making sure that you are constantly checking in with your leadership style and you're adapting and you're investing in yourself as well as your team as you go along. Okay, so um, you are a Scot and uh, you've been here for a while, but you know since 2016. So I want to ask you some questions. Around, so let's just say social, political, economic, right? I want to know what, what have you found tough in an economic sense in Australia? I think the first thing that I was surprised at when I came to Australia was how easily accessible lending was. Um, and, you know, I went to buy a house a couple of years after I was here, and the access to free cash was quite astounding. Um, so that's probably one of the things that surprised me the most. Um, and then people's willingness just to lend and lend and lend. And I asked yeah. people pre the pandemic, you know, what happened in the GFC? And I generally got told people downsized their Mercedes-Benz for a BMW or a VW, and that was how they dealt with it. So I don't think economically um, Australia's been through anything like what we've been through in the last two years in terms of the pandemic. Do you think Australians realise, just broadly, broadly, do you think Australians realise how rich the country is? No, and particularly in certain areas of Australia, I won't tell you which ones, um, but I think there's a massive disparity of wealth in Australia. And a disparity of wealth which is far more extreme than most of us realise. I think for the population size, very much so. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Okay, so other things that have been tough. Socially, what's been tough? Um, not getting out of your house for more than two hours a day was pretty yeah. tough. Yeah. Or was it one hour? I can't remember yeah. now. We've had so many rules. Yeah, yeah, pretty tough, right? Not easy at all. Now, politics. So what have you found interesting, difficult, different around the Australian politics? the Australian political environment? Yeah, listen, I think um, the biggest thing for me was the power of the states versus um, the power of federal government. Um, and clearly, as we've gone through the pandemic, running a business that is cross-state, we've obviously got some stores in New Zealand as well. 
Um, that's been intriguing is how I'd leave it with you, Russell. Well, it's, it's been interesting for me, the way I've explained it, see how this goes with you, is that there's what, what's in your heart and what's in your head, if we can explain it like that. Because for me, what's in my heart, I am down to my bootstraps a libertarian, Scott, right? So the notion that live and let live is very much how I you know, go about things. But then your head gets in the way during the course of a pandemic. You go, yeah, well, we do need to ensure that people, you know, are, uh, in inverted commas, looked after. I found that conflict or the really difficult every single day. And being a Brit, I suspect you might have even have that to an even stronger degree. Yeah, listen, I think um, I really felt for the, the leaders um, because there was no playbook on this. So they had to make calls on their feet. It was ever-changing. There were role models across the globe that people were trying to follow and then they realised very quickly that they were leading in the wrong direction. So, you know, I think um, head, hearts and guts is one for me. Um, I think we very much led with it. the head and then the heart kicked in and the guts was left uh, up to debate at times across states and territories. But, you know, I think Australia did a remarkable job in the first lockdown and then realised probably it hadn't made some of the right decisions and ultimately had to backtrack. And, you know, we're, we're very, very fortunate to have only lost the lives that we have lost, and my blessings go to the people that have lost family and friends. Um, you know, I think when you look back in history, the Australian government and state governments did what they needed to do. Has business got a strong enough voice in Australia? I was surprised when the pandemic kicked off about how business didn't kick back to government and work and support government. So having worked in the UK, we had very strong relationships with government. And it's something that we could probably take a leadership position and support and help government on the impacts, the opportunities, and how we establish Australia as a great country to live in, work in, grow business, and develop our talent and capability. Well, I love using the crystal ball. Um, So let's think about Australia. So let's think about the next decade. Um, just give me a bit of a plan. You're in charge. I'm going to put you in charge, Scott. What's our country look like? Well, this is a hard enough job without being thrown that one, Russell. Um, listen, I think Australia is a land of opportunity. It always has been. Uh, I think the international borders being closed for the last two years gives Australia a real opportunity to really refocus and really rethink about um, its immigration policies, not that it needs to open the borders to everyone. I respect the fact uh, it it goes through processes and builds the right capability. But I think there's a real opportunity to bring new talent and capability in, um, both from an internal point of view of allowing people to leave Australia and for for migration back in. So Mm -hmm. I would really encourage us to think about that. We need to understand the talents and the capabilities globally, and I think that's an opportunity for us. Um, I think from a, an economic point of view, um, you know, I think we need to really think about tax um, legislation. We need to make sure that everyone is paying the right amount of tax um, and doing the right thing. And I think the other thing for us is just about sustainable energy. Um, I think when Scott Morrison went to the Glasgow summit, um, he went with two briefcases, and we really need to be clear about which briefcase he needs to open when we're in the global scale. Uh-huh. Right, and if you're... okay. So structural change, well, I'm putting words in your mouth now. Actually, tax, uh, you'd be doing some structural stuff there, I imagine. Yeah, listen, I'm a retailer, so I want to make sure that uh, people have got more money in their pockets to spend. Um, And anything on tax, housing, interest rates um, affects consumer confidence. So I'm not saying that they're short term. I think we need a more longer term view. that gives the country a bit more stability and ensures that recovery out of the pandemic is sustainable. Um, Maybe a more esoteric question. Do you think we have a sense of one 
here in Australia? I think uh, the pandemic and the governance of the pandemic has shown us that we're not one, mm. and we should be. Yeah, so there's work to do there. Back to David Jones. So you've been there for nearly two years. So how are you tracking? Uh, listen, I think the, the, the thing I'm most proud about is how my people have responded to the challenges we've had. Um, we've had bushfires, we've had pandemics, we've had floods. Um, I'm well, not su- welcome to Australia. <laughs> I'm not sure there's more we can handle, but we've certainly had our fair share of over the last two years. So yeah. I'm really, really proud of our people. I'm really proud about how quickly and agilely we've moved into the digital arena. Um, and I'm really proud about our flagship experiences we are putting together for our stores. So we've got a really clear vision. Um, we've got two flagship stores, one in Sydney, one in Melbourne. And we will develop and grow more of that portfolio across the rest of the states of Australia. Um, and we want to inspire like no other. So I think uh, opening the doors, I, I'm on the sales floor a lot. Um, just the passion, the pride in the David Jones brand astounds me every day. So uh, clearly there's a transformation journey that you're, that you're undertaking. Are you ahead of plan, behind plan? Um, you're going as you would want to go? Well, listen, I always want to go faster. That's what leaders have to do. They have to push the agenda as far as we can. If I'm honest with you, the numerous lockdowns have, have set us back in some ways. Yeah. In other ways, we've accelerated. Mm. So we've had to think agilely. We're further ahead in digital than we probably thought we'd ever be. But on supply chain, there's much more we need to do. And on our store portfolio, there's definitely more we need to do. So there's plenty more work for me to do, Russ. You don't need to worry about me getting bored. <laughs> Christmas, how did you go? Yeah, really well. Yeah. Really well. I was really proud of how we delivered Christmas. We executed on our plan. We upweighted what we wanted to do. And I think we brought a glee and joy to all of our customers. And we saw that in the numbers. I was at the Fashion Festival. Um, thank you. Uh, earlier, well, last week. Tell me... Um, I, there's a lot of Australian brands, there as is. in fashion brands. So what's your, strate- your strategic intent with Australian fashion brands? Oh, listen, we want to have the best assortment across Australia and globally. Um, I've been amazed, and I've personally been to visit all of our Australian brands um, that are based in Australia, um, and there's phenomenal product, yeah. really talented designers, really talented teams. And you know, we, we're also working with people at the Aboriginal Art Fair and design businesses, um, to really differentiate and diversify our product portfolio, which I'm really excited about. I'll say one word. Food. <laughs> What's your plan on food? Listen, like, like, like many businesses that you inherit, uh, you have to make tough decisions. <laughs> and I've made the tough decision that food will complement the David Jones offer yeah. in some of our flagship stores. We will not be a standalone food business. It's very interesting, isn't it, because being trained at M&S... Um, you would have seen how it works. Is there a significant difference in how Australians consume food to the Brits? Yes, there is. Yeah, so explain that to us. So, listen, in the UK, uh, there's a lot more prepared meals. Uh, a lot more people do not cook from scratch. Yeah. In Australia, people enjoy fresh. They enjoy the luxury of shopping much more regularly than they do in the UK. Um, people in the UK freeze food a lot more than they do in Australia. You guys love fresh providence. You love the authenticity of what you can buy Australian and eat in a much more healthier way than my colleagues used to in the UK. So your favourite um, your favorite dish as a 20-year-old um, when you're out on the tear? Uh, listen, you, uh, you could never <laughs> beat a fish and chips when you're in Scotland. Oh, my goodness gracious. And uh, rugby union, rugby league, or um, let's call it soccer? Uh, listen, rugby union and soccer. 
yeah. would be my two, two go-tos. Greatest Scots person ever? Um, I would probably say Alex Ferguson. Do you care about cricket? Yes. Are you just saying that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, other white sports, as in the uniform, um, tennis? Yeah, I'm a big tennis fan. In fact, I'll let you into secret. Andy Murray used to be my coach. At uni- Andy Murray's mum yep. used to be my coach at university. I, I like it. And so you could play? I can still play, yeah. Uh, and so where do you play? I uh, play at the National Tennis Centre. I love it. Well, let's have a game of tennis, Scott. Thank you very much for the conversation. Thank you, Ross. Pleasure meeting you.